Welcome to Stories from the Midland, a collection of historic tales from Teller County and the surrounding areas. Today's story is a more modern one, the story of the capture of the Texas Seven. This episode was written and is being presented for you by Tommy Allen and special guest Teller County Sheriff Jason Mikesell. It was Christmas Eve 2000 in Irving, Texas. Officer Aubrey Wright Hawkins was having dinner with his wife, son, mother, and grandmother. Officer Hawkins was widely regarded by his fellow officers as a very positive man who became an officer because he loved helping others. The people he sat down to dinner with this night were unquestioningly the most important people in his life. This meal was the last happy time he would spend with them. At 6.29, he was one of four units dispatched to an Oshman sporting goods store on a suspicious circumstances call. First on the scene, he drove around the building watching for activity. He was suddenly ambushed with a hail of gunfire that impacted him between 11 and 13 times with six shots striking him in the head. As he was dying, Officer Hawkins was dragged from his squad car and run over by his attackers, his body dragged under a stolen Ford Explorer for approximately 10 feet. He was alive for all of this. One of the assailants, convicted robber George Rivas, saw the witnesses who called 911 on the robbery. He readied his fellow convicts for the arrival of the police. Officer Hawkins could never have seen the attack coming, but as he was being shot, he somehow managed to return fire, wounding Rivas in the exchange. The assailants were seven violent criminals who escaped the John B. Connolly unit, a prison in Carnes County, Texas. These criminals would become known as the Texas Seven. Before long, they were in Pueblo here in Colorado. Away from Texas, they became more comfortable and hid in plain sight. They shopped in police supply stores, stayed in a hotel where a local dispatcher delivered pizzas as a second job, and even ate in a restaurant two blocks from the sheriff's office. One of the fugitives, convicted murderer Joseph Garcia, even tried to buy a level two bullet-resistant vest under an assumed name. But when the store clerk said it required a background check, Garcia moved on to buy two holsters instead, claiming he was a preacher that had received threats. The group stayed in Pueblo for a short while, continuing their act as missionaries. They stayed publicly active, but were doing so with acts of kindness and Bible quotes used as blessings. They deflected any reason whatsoever for anyone to suspect they were ruthless and violent criminals. When they did move, it was to the Coachlight RV Park in Woodland Park on New Year's Eve. They disposed of the Honda they'd been driving by giving it to a parishioner in Pueblo who thought them men of God. They replaced it with a Jeep Cherokee and a Ford Econoline van. The cop killers quickly resumed their missionary personas, with violent rapist Larry Harper taking on the name Brother Jim. As Brother Jim, our rapist, now murderer, attended non-denominational religious gatherings at the RV Park, around Woodland Park, and in Colorado Springs. In the evenings, the crew of fugitives would have campfires and blare Christian music. They also made friends in the community, drinking with the patrons of Tres Hombres Tex-Mex Cantina and shooting pool in Buck's Tavern and Grill. Even back then, Deputy Jason Mikesell 
almost had a run-in with one of the fugitives the day before the sheriff's office was notified that the Texas 7 was in town. The day before I had been in there and actually had seen one of the gentlemen, he was coming down towards us um, and actually turned around and walked away because I was doing standard patrols in there. I didn't, you know, didn't recognize him at the time because they had changed their appearance. And, and really, I wasn't looking for a member of the Texas 7, but I remember how close that encounter came. I was going to stop him and talk to him when I got another call for service that day. And that was the day prior to us identifying that they were there. And I believe that was Revis that I had actually seen the day before. But in the end, their religious pretense and activities are exactly what got them captured. America's Most Wanted ran a story about the Texas 7 and displayed their pictures and characteristics. On January 21st, 2000, one of the women from their religious gatherings recognized Revis, specifically his face and the reported twitch in his left eye. She got together with the owner of the Coachlight RV park, and the two reported their suspicious activity to authorities. I remember the day before we actually went to uh, apprehend the Texas 7. I was a very young SWAT deputy. I was actually working the day prior to that raid when we were to move in. I had met the gentleman that was coming in to talk about Texas 7 in the lobby. And he came in and he said, you know, I, I think these guys are in my trailer park. And I remember it was Wade Holder. He was a local in the county. So I went back in and, and I was going off shift. So I gave it to the next duty coming, uh, deputy coming on shift. About two hours later, I got the initial call out that the next morning we were going to be moving in on them. And as I sat there that night, I remember we didn't know we were kind of on alert all night, just um, waiting for that next call. Cause you didn't know because of the, the murders that they had already done, uh, if they would get tipped off and then there would be a serious issue. We knew that the probability of there being a, you know, a major incident with this, either a gunfight or somebody running, was, was a pretty sure bet at the time. I slept in my chair that night with all my equipment on, ready to go, because we just didn't know at what time that was going to happen. Teller County Sheriff Frank Fenn hooked up the family RV to pose as a tourist as he pulled into the coach light. You couldn't stop him when he was going to get involved. He was a force of nature. He's actually, you know, one of my favorite sheriffs. He... He could hold his own against anybody, and he didn't back down from anything. And that was the thing. He took his own RV up there and did surveillance on it. Drove it up there. You know, he looked like an older gentleman, so he could get away with it. But, uh, yeah, it was very impressive. So the next morning, I reported in. Uh, it was it was a dark, kind of chilly morning. And I pulled into the sheriff's office, and I remember just the amount of people that were here was unbelievable. You had alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, or ATF. You had the FBI. You had the DEA. You had multiple uh, teams, supervision from El Paso County, from Teller County. And when I had come into the office, they broke us into uh, uh, mobile assault units. We were driving Ford Explorers at the time, so they would put a driver, uh, kind of a navigator, and then a gunner in the back seat because we just didn't know how bad it could get if these guys had left in a vehicle. And we didn't want them to get into a population base uh, with seven escapees that might be heavily armed. So I was a gunner, uh, and I was with two different deputies. One's name was Larry Sane, and one was uh, Mark Fokey. He was a sergeant here for many years. The plan was hatched on how we were going to operate, what we were going to do. The first team that was our sniper observer teams went out, and they had moved in on the hillside up above the uh, trailer. That was actually the Coach Light RV park. Revis, along with convicted murderer Joseph Garcia and Michael Rodriguez, 
a man convicted of having his wife killed for $250,000 in insurance money, got in the Jeep and drove to a store in the Safeway parking lot. Teller County SWAT deputies Stan Bishop, now Under Sheriff Bishop, Bud Bright, now Cripple Creek Chief of Police, and Eddie Duvall spotted them and followed them to the, at the time, Western Convenience Store near Cristola. As the Jeep pulled up to the gas pumps, the Teller County deputies blocked them head-on with their vehicle. As they were moving to apprehend the killers, an El Paso County Sheriff's Office vehicle moved up behind the Jeep. The Teller County deputies pulled the three fugitives, all of whom were armed, from their Jeep while the El Paso deputies maintained area security. Rivas reportedly made the comment that having the vehicle moving to block them head-on surprised his crew and prevented any escape. One of the SWAT teams that was supposed to be assisting us missed their assignment, and one of the mobile assault units, which had Stan Bishop in the car um, with several other deputies, had uh, ended up interacting with the guy they'd come to a gas station. So I remember we were responding to that when the word came out that that the other SWAT team had missed going to the trailer where they were actually at, the the RV. So we changed our course because we were supposed to get involved in the initial contact. And then uh, we had parked below in, in the Woodland RV park, which was kind of a trailer park next to. They were about to capture Larry, brother Jim, Harper, and Randy Halperin a man convicted of child abuse after breaking the arms and legs of a 16-year-old he was babysitting, beating the youngster's head so badly that the skull fractured and an eye filled with blood, and burning the youngster with cigarettes. Oh, and by the way, Halpern's reason for doing this was because the child wouldn't stop crying. We didn't want to come through the main drag and tip them off that they were there because we knew that they didn't know yet. Our sniper counter snipers uh, or, or observers were still in the tree lines and they were giving us information that they could see movement like people were going to leave. And so we were in a rush to get there to be able to pull containment on this. Now there was just the three of us and the two that were in the trees doing the observations. You know, it was a pretty cool morning. And back then we wore uh, regular army fatigues. That was our uniform. I had a full size M16 because back during, during the day, nothing was short, right? We were running through the RV park and there was tons of people in their small RVs and small trailers. Uh, And I remember this one guy coming out and he goes, hey, what's going on? And all I could do is yell at him, get back in your house and uh, take cover because we didn't know with that engagement if it was going to occur. So we go running up the drive and we get stationed behind vehicles in different places to form a a circle around this thing so they couldn't get out of there on us and we could contain them to that one spot. I remember a guy came out, he saw us initially, and then turned around and bolted back in the house. And th- we didn't know how many people were in the house, because I think there were still four missing at that one time. They had they had captured three um, at the initial gas station. That was Stan Bishop and the others. There were possibly four other people that were in this, this RV, and we knew them to be heavily armed. And we were trying to get people out of the area and secure it all at the same time. So when they saw that, they then barricaded themselves in the RV. Later in the day, the other team finally got up to where they were supposed to have been, and we had a better net around this place. Um, And I remember them running to the windows multiple times with guns. They didn't point them at us, but they had guns in their hands, and so we knew that if they came out, it wasn't going to be good. If they tried to drive the RV out of there, that we weren't going to allow them to get that RV out of there. It was clear that we we just couldn't let that happen. It could have it could have caused uh, all the civilians in the area to be put in you know a lot of danger. And about that time, it was the whole world was blowing up because we had helicopters coming in, news crews that were flying in. Um, they were coming close to the ground. We couldn't see the trailer at some points because all the dust and debris until they got the airspace cleared. 
and we had the FBI come rolling in, their, their hostage negotiation teams trying to negotiate them out. Frank Finn was our sheriff at the time, and he was a, he was a hard-nosed New York cop. He was quite a man. He was a mentor, and I, um, I remember him. And the FBI had, had asked him, you know, hey, uh, you know, we're probably going to let this negotiation go on till tomorrow. And I remember Frank looking at him going, he says, no, you're either going to go in and get him or we're going to go in and get him. <laughs> this is done. Uh, we're not going to allow this to continue. Nearby, El Paso Deputy Wes Walters, now Lieutenant Walters at Teller County, had volunteered to come up to Teller County to assist with traffic control. He and State Trooper Brian Albrecht were near enough to hear a shot ring out and thought the fugitives were opening fire. Um, and I remember the FBI gathering all their folks and they ended up going to the door and, and knocking on the door and trying to get them to come out. And, uh, you know, prior to that, about two hours earlier, we'd heard the first gunshot. And uh, we knew that it was probably self-inflicted because none of the rounds came out of the, the van. And I think there was a second shot. Uh, the first shot... I don't think he had hit himself vitally. The second shot, he had hit himself vitally and had died in the trailers, what we later found out. Despite his professed Christian beliefs, Brother Jim broke the commandment, thou shalt not kill, when he shot himself in the chest and took his own life. Just before that happened, one of the other gentlemen had actually come out. We moved in on him. It was Larry Sane and Ian Mark Fokey. And as we're doing that, uh, he'd come out and uh, Larry Sane was able to get handcuffs on him. So it was one of the sheriff's office guys that grabbed him up and brought him back behind the line. And then we found out there was only one uh, male that was still in the house. And after the gunshots, we knew more than likely that he had probably expired or was dying. But we couldn't just rush in on something like that. The FBI decided they were going to move up on it and try to take it in. So they were able to get to the trailer and get inside and find that the gentleman actually shot himself. And as to Halprin, while he may have been able to beat up on a child, when faced with law enforcement, he walked out of the RV with his hands up, crying in self-pity, having surrendered. He was apparently unable to regain control of himself and cried for quite some time. They had uh, locked down Highway 24. We still had two people on the loose. We didn't know where they were at. And I remember that whole next day or that day um, for the rest of the afternoon, we stayed on standby and we were going everywhere in the county. You'd have a tip every five minutes of a sighting. Now, I don't think they knew where those people were them. I think they had already gotten out of the area and later they were captured in Colorado Springs at a hotel. The two remaining fugitives, aggravated robber Donald Newbury and violent rapist Patrick Murphy, escaped and were holed up in a Colorado Springs Holiday Inn near Garden of the Gods Road. Law enforcement officials found their van and, by January 24, 2001, had the fugitives surrounded. In the ensuing negotiations, the two demanded a television news appearance. A KKTV anchor conducted a telephonic interview in which the rapist and the robber, two of the men involved in the fatal shooting of Officer Aubrey Hawkins before dragging him under an SUV on Christmas Eve, made some claims about the corruption of the Texas legal system. Then they surrendered. The flight of the murderous Texas 7 was over. For our initial piece, it was uh, probably one of the biggest takedowns that have happened in the U.S. And I know that the FBI classified it as, I can't remember what number case it was, major case. But the last major case that had been pulled by the FBI for a fugitive was Bonnie and Clyde before these seven. And I think we have a plaque around here somewhere that actually says that. That was kind of surprising. I didn't know that um, it would be in the same ballpark as Bonnie and Clyde, you know, through that era. You know, later on, they took us to the U.S. or the state capitol. 
I remember all of the senators and congressmen and, and House representatives had stood in line and had shaken all of our hands as being heroes in the state of Colorado. And they'd actually done a, a decree. And so we had our name, each of our names on the decree as being heroes in the state of Colorado. It was an honor to do that. I think we were very lucky because we were very well prepared. And that's one thing this county has always done well with. And the, you know, the team leader at that time was Lou Morrow. He was a hard-nosed old guy that um, he ran the SWAT team well. Um, he trained well. You know, we had just great people. And uh, it, it ended the way it needed to without a shot being fired by us. And I think it was because they were so taken by surprise. Of the murderers of Officer Hawkins, violent rapist and self-proclaimed Christian Larry, brother Jim, Harper, committed a very unchristian suicide. The man who had his wife killed for insurance money, Michael Rodriguez, was the first to be executed, receiving his sentence by lethal injection on August 14, 2008. In an interview with Associated Press after Rodriguez dropped all appeals on his sentence, he said, my parents raised me to be accountable. He was apparently speaking of the same father who received his own conviction in the case for providing a getaway vehicle. Convicted robber George Rivas was executed by lethal injection on February 29, 2012. Violent robber Donald Newbury was executed by lethal injection on February 4, 2015. Previously convicted murderer Joseph Garcia was executed by lethal injection on December 4, 2018. Violent rapist Patrick Henry Murphy Jr. has yet to be executed. He had his execution stayed twice by claiming religious discrimination. Child abuser Randy Halprin has not yet been executed, also claiming religious discrimination. So closes our story of the Texas Seven. They came to Woodland Park and thought they'd fool everyone here. But thanks to the sharp attention of our residents and the quick and efficient actions by our law enforcement professionals, these violent men were stopped without a single person in Teller County coming to harm. I remember watching TV uh, the next night and that same guy that I had gone running by, um, he was on the news and they were interviewing him. And the thing that he said was, he says, he says, it was the craziest thing I've ever seen. He said, this guy comes running by me with an M16 yelling at me to get undercover. He says, I was so scared. I didn't know what to do, where to go. And I got to thinking, I went, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to Sheriff Mikesell, Under Sheriff Bishop, and Lieutenant Walters for their invaluable interviews while I was writing this podcast. I'm Tommy Allen, and on behalf of Trevor Phipps, thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time for more Stories from the Midlands.